Welcome back to For Folk's Sake. My name is Paige, and this week our guest is Bill Edgar, the Coffin Confessor. Bill is a private investigator, author, and a Queensland, Australia native. He just so happens to also be the infamous Coffin Confessor. Now, what is Coffin Confessing? What does it even mean to be a Coffin Confessor? Bill meets with clients as they're about to pass and helps fulfill their dying wishes. These dying wishes range from interrupting funerals to reveal decades worth of secrets or removing secret items after the client has passed. Listen as Bill walks us through his early life, including being homeless as a teen, spending time in the notorious Bago Road prison, and how he eventually became known as the Coffin Confessor. This episode is painted with colorful language. I opted not to edit any language out, but instead mark it as explicit and also give a warning now. This episode is not for little folks. So with all that being said, it's your turn to learn episode 40 with Bill Edgar, the Coffin Confessor. Bill, welcome to For Folk's Sake. I'm so happy to be talking to you. I've been watching your journey and listening to podcasts for about six months now. I think I've probably listened to every conversation I possibly could out here. So it's so nice to finally meet you. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Of course. So before we get started with all of my juicy questions, um, do you mind just giving us a quick introduction of who you are, what you've done, things like that? Yeah, certainly. So my name's Bill Edgar. I'm um, from Queensland, Australia. I'm known as the Coffin Confessor. I crash funerals on behalf of the deceased, telling those that were loved how much they were loved and uh, those that were loved to hate to bugger off. Yeah, I love the language you use in your book. It's so upfront <laughs> and so right to the point. I don't cut around anything either. I'm a I don't beat around the bush. I whack through the bush. So I love the language you use to get messages across. It's appreciated. Oh, good. Black and white. That's how I like it. Yeah. No one has time for gray area. So I know when you were younger, um, you've told before on stories, you know, talking to people that you spent some time being homeless. That's never an experience I've had. Um, so I just kind of wanted to start, you know, you say that you went to the Southport School and on Google, it looks like this outstanding and prestigious school, but that's not the experience that you had whatsoever. No, no, it, it's uh, it is one of Australia's prestigious boys schools. It's an, uh, an amazing uh, school uh, from the outside looking in. It looks wonderful. Uh, from the inside looking out, you're trying to get out. It's uh, yeah, it's horrifying. Or it was for me in the '80s, absolutely. I mean, I won a um, I won a five year uh, sporting scholarship when I was 12 years of age. Um, I lived in government housing. I was already being abused from the age of seven by my grandfather, um, and it was a, a, a torrential. It was just horrendous, horrendous childhood. And I was um, basically preyed upon at the school uh, by three teachers, you know, and it was, it was terrible, absolutely disgusting. And um, it's something that I've been fighting for a long time and, and trying to kick down the doors and open the barriers and, and let people in and let them know what actually happened, what goes on behind these uh, institutions. I saw that you started an advocacy group for this school. I think that's amazing, you know, unless someone takes that first step of exposure almost. Mm. Cycles like that just continue, they perpetuate, they get worse because the environment has no checks and balances to it almost. There's no uh, justice or, you know, exposure mm. to that. And so I'm oh, not, absolutely. 
the one thing I noticed is that you're such an advocate for people whose voices are hardly heard. And I think that's just absolutely amazing. I love that. Yeah, that's sort of come about. I think it's just something that's always been um, within me. I, I've always stood up for the bully, uh, you know, the underdog and the bully that attacks people for no reason just just because they're a bully. I mean, I hated that and I was attacked many times, but for some reason I had something that others didn't, I guess, and, and that was to be able to stand up to the bully. And it's something I've been trying to teach people to do. And it's not easy because bullies can be very fierce. They can be they can be harmful you know, in many ways, not just physical, but mentally. Um, so it's something that I've always stood up and against is the uh, the bully and, and the person that you know, that's intimidated and, and you know being harassed and, and all those type of things is it's a shame that we go through that and it's a shame that people have to live in fear and that's what they're doing. So I'm actually bringing them out and saying, you know what, fuck them, we're not going to do this anymore. Yeah. We're actually going to stand strong and I'm going to stand beside you, not behind you, not in front of you, but beside you. And you're going to be the one that's now going to carry the torch. And that's what I did with the Lost Boy of TSS Facebook page. I started that page because in 1987, um, a, a, another student came out and said that he was sexually abused at the Southport School. Now, in 1997, he took his own life. Now, Peter Jackson was Australia's icon of rugby league. He was a sports superhero. He played for state. He played for country. He was a police officer. He did so many things. And when he came out and said, look, I was abused at the Southport School, he ended up taking his life in 1997. And it was 1997 that I got shocked because I went, I thought I was the only one. I didn't know Peter had been through all that. I had no idea. He was a few years above me and I had no idea he'd been through all that. So I took up the torch then and I went, you know what, I'm going to start something and I'm going to start it big and it's going to be loud and I'm going to keep going no matter what they say. And now I think I've brought forward uh, 133 boys have now come forward, you know, through that. So it's, yeah, it's incredible. It's amazing. Yeah. Mm. Do you, um, you know, the Me Too movement was such a strong thing globally. You know, I think it mm. kind of started in the US and then it, it leached into other parts of the world. Do you think your experience is similar to the way women describe sexual abuse? Or do you think being a man, it's a little it's a little different? Couldn't understand why more men don't come out and say it. And, and those men that do come out and say, oh, you know, I was abused uh, sexually, physically, mentally. Uh, by somebody, but I'm not going to name them. Holy fuck. Name them. Shame them. Bring them out. Let their, their families and their friends and associates know exactly what they did because that's what I did. I come out and I told people that my, you know, it was my grandfather and it was teachers, Perry Morse and McGregor, that abused me. And those three men were vile teachers. Now, when I was, uh, you know, 15, 16, living on the streets, I had a real revenge ethic against uh, gays. I, I, I honestly, and this is one of my biggest regrets in life, is that as a kid, I used to take my revenge out on the gay community. I'd go around, uh, it was called like poof to bashing, gay bashing, whatever it was. And oh, I'd right. do that. Yeah. So I'd go around and do that as a 15, 16 year old boy. And I, I'd pick the biggest, the most brutal and, and the worst people, at, but they were gay because they were hanging out in these gay haunts and that. And I'd just bash them. And then all of a sudden as life went on, and as I got older and I started to understand more, the four perpetrators that abused me were not gay. They were married men with children, all four of them. 
Wow. Yeah. That has blown my mind because you usually think of like sexual predators as like these creeps who are in their basements and they're loners and Mm. they're on these dirty parts of the web, you know, looking at pictures of small children, but like married men are that perfect cascade for, you know, you'd never think that a married man is the one who's sexually abusing young boys. It's the perfect Mm. curtain almost. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, each one of them had, you know, two to three children of their own. It was just, you know, and since I've brought them out and I've uncovered that, um, some in their families have said, you know, thanks for coming out. I was abused too by my dad. Or some have come out and said, that never happened and I'm not going to believe it. And that's okay for them to do that. That's fine. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has a story. And it's like coffin confessing. Every person has a skeleton in the closet. Everyone. It's just a matter of if you want to let it out or not. Yeah, that's true. What would you say is one of the biggest lessons you learned while being homeless that you are still using today or that is still close to your heart today? Always be prepared because it could happen in a minute. It could happen in the the next day, the next hour. You know, I'm always prepared. I always have, um, I, I call it a back door. I always have a back door and escape route wherever I go, whatever I do, um, even now, even today, like um, if financially we all crash and everything goes to, you know, to shit, what happens? Where does everyone go? Well, I have a back door. I know where I'm going. I know where my money is. I know where a little bit is is kept safe and I know where my family's going to be and you know what I mean? So I've always prepared my whole life. I prepare for death every day. Every morning I wake up, it could be my last morning and I don't know why I do it. I just do it. I prepare because I know that, you know, if I walk out of the house and, and my wife's out having lunch with her friends or whatever, and I walk out of the house and I get killed, who's at home? Who's going to feed my animals? Who's going to, you know, like my wife's out, she doesn't know. And then when she finds out, she's a mess. So I make sure everything's prepared. I don't know why I do that, but I do. And I try to instill that in a lot of people to do. Yeah. And you have children, right? And grandchildren. I'm sure that's a great yeah. lesson that they've learned through you too, is that always preparedness. I think maybe it might be, if there's one thing I've noticed from listening to your story so many times is you've had a very unexpected ev- life events happen mm. to you. And so uh, maybe it's that. <laughs> yeah, it, it could be because things just happen. And it's like people say, oh, shit happens, you know, and, and shit does happen. But you know what? When it happens, I grab it and I look at it and I investigate it and I think to myself, why did it happen? How did it happen? And how can I make that that either negative turn into a positive or how can I use it to better myself for later on or, or keep it in the back door for a bit? You know, who knows? It's, yeah. Uh, it, it, yeah. We have a saying in my house, shit happens, but shit will buff. Like it'll buff itself out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's true. It, it does. But I'm also of the... Um, perception that you have to make it happen. You have to make things, you know, clean and, and, and in your own world. You know, people say to me, like, um, you know, they'll say, oh, how come you're still alive after all that? I just don't understand how you're still alive after you've been through so much after reading your book and, and all this, you know, and I said to them, well, since you read my book, you'd know that I met my wife, well, a, a girl, basically, by stealing a school uniform and walking into a school. And I met this girl who, who she said she was going to marry me one day. And look, 38 years later, we're still together. Now, I've always said to them that if I'm prepared to die for my wife and children, aren't I prepared to live for them? And that's what I do every day. 
as I get up and I live for them. And for me, of course, because I've learned now to forgive myself. It wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. So, you know, I, I forgive myself. I don't forget what happened and I don't forgive those that hurt me, but yeah. I forgive myself. Yes, forgive but never forget is one of my mm. favorite ways to live. Not everyone is deserving of forgiveness, in my opinion. I absolutely love the way you speak about your wife. It's such a tangible connection and appreciation for her. I You dedicated your book to her. I love it. And what do you think mm-hmm. you've learned by basically getting to grow up with your wife and go through these experiences with your wife because you and your wife were you knew her when you um went to prison right oh yeah yeah we were um she just turned 15 uh I just turned 16 when we met um and we were dating for you know a year I was living on the street still I was still attending the school Uh, I couldn't wait to go to school to see her and um and I was always hungry and the school was the best place to get food because a lot of kids back then, you know, they'd buy a tuck shop or they wouldn't eat it or their mums would pack a lunch and they wouldn't eat it. And I'd, I'd be the one eating all their lunches, you know. So I had this this uh, great little outlet. And, um, yeah, for months, I think I was at the Southport. It's called the Southport State School. And it's the it's same name, similar, you know, but it's a co-ed school, the one I met my wife at. And, um, you know, I, I went there and uh, I was there for about seven months. And then the headmaster came into the classroom and she said, excuse me, um, are you a student at this school? And I said, yeah, I am. And she goes, well, you're not actually enrolled, so you might have to leave. (laughs) And I just stood up and left. Now, back then, that was in, what, 1985, 84, 85. And to me, looking back now, I think to myself, why didn't they grab that young boy and say, you need help? You know, I don't understand why that happened or how that happened, but it did. You know, but my wife came with me. She She left the school too. Yeah, she actually got up and came with me. She's like, if you're going, I am too. Let's hit the road. Exactly. Yeah, and and that's what she did. You know, she she stayed with her mum and dad, obviously, and she never told them that she left school because she used to get ready and come to school all the time, but she never went to school. And we used to hang out at the beach or whatever, you know, and it just grew from there. It was incredible. That is so incredible. It, you mm. know, having a student within your curriculum that you don't know is enrolled for that long makes me really wonder what Australia's public education <laughs> system's doing. What's your level of organization and checks and balances that a student? Yeah. Can, what you stole the uniform from a clothesline? Yeah, well, that's right. I, I was a street kid and I, I found a, you know, this house had a clothesline at the back with the school uniform on it. I just grabbed the shirt, put it on and walked into the nearest school and um, started getting taught. But um, as for your checks and balances in schools, when I walked out of the Southport school, which is the boys school I had the scholarship in after being abused in 1984, around April it was, I walked out of that school and the school had no idea that a student had left for 31 years later when I confronted them. They said, no, you, you, we, we don't even know you. And I said, oh, I was the recipient of a five-year scholarship. And they said, no, we didn't have scholarships back then. I said, well, you better check your records. And then they came back and they said, oh, my God. And I said, yeah, oh, my God, now where's all my files and everything? And everything they said had been lost. Uh, so, so it's been a massive court case. We're going. It's been going on for years. For thirty odd years, I've been fighting the Southport School. Oh, really? So, thirty years? Yeah, they they didn't know I was missing. They had no idea a student was missing, and that's how I became the lost boy of TSS. Because all the students I went to school with 
were going, yeah, he was at school. I remember him. And then other students would come and go, yeah, yeah, we used to play together or he played soccer or did this and cricket and yeah, yeah, I know him well. And then a group of those boys got together and they said, "That's just, we're going to call you the lost boy of TSS. So that stuck with me and I just became the lost boy of TSS and yeah, crazy. Do you think it's a coincidence that they lost your files, but you had endured all this abuse? That seems a little too <laughs> convenient. Of course. I mean, look, there's a lot of things that have happened. I mean, there was a, a house named after one of the uh, housemasters that abused me and his house was terminated and his was gone. And then you ask why and they say, oh, you know, we just had to move for space. There was a teacher there that was uh, Morse, uh, Mr. Morse, I called him. His name was Ron Morse. Now, he was at the school for 44 years. And just before he died, he told his son that he abused, raped and molested many young boys over that time. Now, Andrew Morse, who's a good friend of mine, has come forward and said, you know what, Dad did that to me as well. Um, I've been to the police, but they won't take a statement. I've been to the school and the school doesn't care. And I'm like, well, we've got to make them care. We're going to force them to care. And that's what we do. Yeah. Giving that voice to people again. I love it. I love your advocacy themes throughout all that you've done. And it's one common thing that I've noticed is just you're standing up, like you said, standing up to the bullies. I love that. It's so funny, though, that people deemed you the lost boy of TSS. It's interesting yeah, I, that they yeah. wouldn't have noticed. Yeah, I know. Uh, they knew. They they really did know. I believe they knew. Someone knew, you know, because I was being abused by one of the people that was the highest in the school. So he would have grabbed my file and just got rid of it and hoped I would have gone away. And I did. I ended up on the streets and in prison. And, you know, it, it, was, it was great for them because I was gone. They had no idea I was going to come back there. You know, right. and they always said, um, someone wrote recently, they said, um, because I was dyslexic and I never, I, I couldn't read, write or spell throughout my whole, you know, I, I was, I was nearly 30 before I could read, write or spell. But I, you know, someone just recently wrote, they said, um, what's the smartest thing the dumbest boy ever did at TSS? And someone says, oh, you kick the walls in and open the doors. And they said, yeah, well, what's the dumbest thing the smartest people at TSS ever did? They tried to stop him. And it's so true, you know, and don't stop me because you won't stop me. You know, if you've abused children, including myself, I'm going to name and shame you. I'm going to I'm going to screech it all over the world. And that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Oh, I love that analogy. That's so awesome. It, it like filled up my soul with all this fire. It's like you're so stupid to even try to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. And that's why I say to men. I know it's embarrassing. I know it's shameful. I know it's hurtful. I've been through it. I blamed myself for years. I, you know, I hated looking at myself in the mirror because, you know, I, I just hated myself. And it was my wife that kept me going every time. You know, she'd say, just get over it. You're right. Keep going, you know, and I'd keep going. Now, some people don't have that person in their life to do that. I was very fortunate to have that. Now, I know it's hard for men to come forward and say what happened to them. But me personally, I can't understand why it's so hard <laughs> because I do it. Yeah. But I can understand on their side because I started to think they haven't got what I've got. And that's my wife. You know? Right, right. Yeah. It's good that you keep that perspective that maybe it's easy for me, but not for others. But whether or mm. not it's easy or hard on whichever day you keep going. Um, I know that you also went to prison. You went to Bago Road. I did a ton of research about there. And the only <laughs> thing that I can say after all of my research is almost like infamy. Do you think that's like an accurate word to use? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, yeah, crazy. I mean, when... <laughs> 
it was a, a prison that had uh, two sides. It was one jail, two jail. One side had electricity and running water. The other side didn't, and it had the worst of the worst. And uh, they threw me in the worst of the worst. At 17, I was the youngest prisoner to ever walk into that jail. You know, it was terrible, horrifying. You are notorious on so many levels. Mm. <laughs> the youngest one. Yeah. That was one of my questions. I mean, you were newly an adult. They gave you six months, but then they put you in a maximum security prison. I don't know if this is just a state's thing, but usually those mm. shorter under the year sentences, depending on the crime, which yours was not um, violent or resulted in like homicide uh. or assault, um, they go to a minimum or they go to county. But it was really mm. peculiar to see that in your situation, you ended up at a maximum security prison. Yeah, it was. Um, I, I recall the judge saying that um, although the crime wasn't a bad crime and it wasn't worth punishment to what I got to the extent because I didn't have a home to go to. He said that I'd get fed, clothed and a roof over my head and <laughs> they put me there. Now in Queensland in Australia, we were the only state that um, 17 year olds were tried as an adult so you could go to that prison. Now the, the um, homes for children, uh, you know, 17, uh, 16 up to 16 year olds, they were too full at the time. I believe. So I couldn't go there. So they sent me to this Bogger Road and it was, um, yeah, notorious to to say the least. It was, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I fought. Oh, yeah, I fought every day. Every day of my life I fought. But the hardest thing I fought was not to become one of them. That was the hardest thing because I met guys that were going in for one year and after a year I'd say, you're still here? And they said, yeah, I just got life. What for? Because someone tried to rape me and I killed them. And I'm like, oh God, you know, and that's what happens inside. It can, it, that's how easily it can happen. It's crazy. Yeah. I was going to say, I noticed that you had said that they put you on a floor with um, child abusers, pedophiles and the sorts. Is that correct? Did you find yeah, it hard uh, to restrain your emotion after the experiences you had? Because my, I don't know if my, I would have had the control to not just beat someone to death. I mean, I don't know any other way to beat around the bush. I just, that's yeah. how I feel. I, um, I had no control. I, <laughs> they put me in there. I didn't know these guys. I didn't know. I, I had no idea who they are. And um, when they put me in there, uh, one of the um, screws uh, said to me, he said, look, this is protection. You're 17. This is why we're putting you in here. And then um, this prisoner came up to me and he goes, hey, kid, what are you doing in there? And I said, I don't know. They just put me in here. They said, it's like because of my age. And he said, well, they're all rock spiders. And I said, well, what's a rock spider? And they said, pedophiles, child murderers and rapists. And I went, all of them? And he said, yeah. And uh, I, I went nuts. I went absolutely nuts. I just, I went so bad that they had to pull me out of there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they put me in general population. And that was just as bad too, because I met some terrible people that side as well. So either way, but then I decided that I needed to do something for myself and not to sit in a cell scared shitless. So I conjured up this idea that I could assist the screws by running messages for prisoners. And they said, oh, yeah, well, that's a way we could look after you as well, because you're the only one that can have basically secure access to the outside of the prison running messages, which is outside the gates, not actually outside the prison. It's internal, but I could have free reign and I'd be delivering messages from one prisoner to another. And it, it, I became what they called a runner. And I just created that job out of nothing. 
I just created it and it was great. You're such an entrepreneur. I mean, making opportunity in the strangest or maybe not the most opportune situations. Mm. Yeah, but no, it was just something I had to do. I had to, I had to get away from these people. Um, you know, it was, it was a frightening experience. I mean, like after all I'd been through, all I knew was fight or flight and you can't flight in there. There's nowhere to flight to. No. <laughs> so you had to fight. And yeah, then but... I thought, well, you know what? I've got to come up with something because I'm not going to go and work in a, in a laundry or kitchen or because that's where these mass murderers are all working and they're all talking about what they did and who they cut up. And I'm like, I don't want to fucking know that. You know, yeah, I, no. I and I don't to do want to be your friend day. either. Exactly. You know, but my time of six months ended up in, in total, I think I did nearly two years. Was that so, because you kept uh, getting charged yeah. on while you were inside? It was, yeah, part related to that, but also because they let me out at one stage and because I was only on what they called, I got bail and mm. uh, you could go you could go sit on remand and remand prison is a little bit different, but although it's the same prison, it's just a different section of the prison. So I was on remand for about three or four months, then I'd get out. I'd go back on the streets and then they put me back in for the same charge because I couldn't report, have the conditions. And I, I just, you know, I was just a kid. I didn't care. You know, I thought I'd get away with it and just walk on, but, no, it, you know, it didn't happen. But, uh, you know, I was 17 and Lara used to uh, come and visit me, you know, all the time. And she even brought, you know, I got her pregnant, you know, when I was out and, People who said, "Oh, you got to run. She's pregnant," and I said, "I wouldn't run from this. I love her. I'm staying yeah, with her." Yeah, I'm starting yeah. a family. What do you mean? Yeah, and unfortunately, that fell over as well. Lara was like, "We've got a child to look after, and you're in jail, and you're getting out, and you're going back. What the hell's going on?" And I don't know. She just stayed with me. I don't know how she did it. I really don't. Sometimes I just I shudder even talking about it. Sometimes I get a lump in my throat, and I think, oh, "Fuck! How did she do that? What did I do to her?" You know, and I, I think sometimes that I, I, I created a monster because I took her, you know, from where she was and, you know, I think, wow. But you know what? It was her decision. She, she made the decisions and, and she loved me that much that she kept me, you know, as, as tight as she could and on the, on the narrow road. And I love her and thank her for that for my whole life. I'm, and that's why. You know, it's not because I'm indebted to her that I'm with her. It's no. because I love her to death yeah. that I'm with her. Yeah. You know? It's going through hard times like that with your spouse, you know, that's when you realize that they're not loving you out of maybe a need or anything mm. like that. They make that choice to love you. And I think oh, that I sure. would rather be loved out of choice than, you know, I need to be with this person because of X, Y, or Z. We have a child together and it's easier financially, you know, whatever excuses you can come up with but being through someone in hard times like that and maybe going through mm. those lows with someone after maybe you've been here and now you've moved here and back up and down yeah you know that's a choice and that's a love that I look at as very pure she sounds like an angel oh yeah absolutely oh, yeah absolutely I mean look at the end of the day it, it's so easy for people to separate these days you know they have an argument and they can't get over it and they separate or it festers and they don't talk about it and that's something that lara and i have always done is we've always spoke about things you know if if something's wrong or something's happened i, I can always talk to her there's never you know it, it's like i i had i don't have friends so i don't have a friend in the world and the reason being is because i don't carry their baggage i used to and i know 
the closest people to you are the ones that hurt you the most. Mm -hmm. It's so true. It really is. And this is probably why I don't like people as much anymore. And I like their animals more. I really do. But it's because, you know, I, I say to you know, people that Lara is my best friend, right? Not only my best friend, she's my confidence, she's my life. And, and you know, I didn't realize I was hers. But it's a beautiful thing when you find that out because, you know, although it's easy for you to separate and to get the shits with each other and this go on, if you don't get it resolved and you don't talk about it, it'll come up later on and bite you on the ass. It always does. Oh, so yeah, quiet resentment. <laughs> yeah, you've you got to get it out straight away and just go, you know what, this is what's pissing me off. And recently my wife had, had a bad horse accident. She's had two now, really bad ones. And now she's, she's, you know, she went through the wheelchair and now she's on a cane and she's walking around and she's got you know, nerve damage and that. But now she's back on the horse <laughs> and I'm freaking out because it's, it's, I'm upset about it and it pisses me off. But then I think to myself, if you stop doing what you love doing just because of an accident, you stop living and you're just going to sit in front of a TV and watch Netflix. What the fuck's that about? I've got to support her as much as she used to support me in, in my stupidity ways and you know, whatever I did. So, yeah. you know, Your yeah, it's crazy. Your concern comes from love. Talk. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it does. Yeah. You know, that's one of my first questions about your coffin confessing was how did your wife feel when you first presented this idea to her of being a coffin confessor? <laughs> I, I think, um, to be honest with you, I think she heard it through the media. <laughs> I didn't actually tell her. <laughs> yeah. Are you serious? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't tell anyone. I just Because I'd just <laughs> done the one funeral. I didn't know it was going to turn out to the way it was. <laughs> I just went and crashed one funeral for a guy that I was working for. I had no idea it was going to do what it did. I didn't know that it was I was going to do hundreds of funerals. I had no idea, you know. It was just crazy how it worked out. And I I um I I, I went out one morning. I remember I had to do a television interview and it was down near the beach. And I went down, my wife said, Oh, where you off to? I said, Oh, I'm just gonna go talk to these people. It's a business thing, I'll be back soon. And and I'm all dressed up and I go down and I do this interview and uh, my wife and my daughter are sitting in the unit that we'd rented out because we were away and they they decided to come down to this beach area and do this this show. And uh, I got back there and the show was on TV in the unit. My wife was watching it. Going, oh, my gosh. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> yeah. So it was bizarre, but yeah. Was she, yeah, crazy. I, I'm trying to put my, myself in her shoes that if my husband had a secret as big as crashing someone's funeral <laughs> and regarded, didn't tell me, um, then did a TV interview and I turn it on and there's my husband and I'm hearing about him crashing a funeral and telling someone's best yeah. friend, you know, sit down or, um, <laughs> I don't know if I would be a little bit proud, but then like make him think I'm mad at first, but be like, okay, that's my husband. Yeah. <laughs> At first, she was like, what the fuck are you doing? What have you done now? Like, it's just like Bill's gone and done something different again. And it's got the world's attention this time. What is it? You know, and, and after she learned about it and I explained it to her and, and how it was going, she too thought it was like just a one or two off. That was it. You know, it wasn't going to go anywhere. But then it just snowballed. And uh, she loves the concept of me going to a funeral and, and saying the loving messages like most people do. But like I said to her, everyone isn't the same. Everyone doesn't have a loving message. Some people don't want certain people in the family to be at their funeral. 
And if I'm going to be engaged by those people to tell their auntie, uncle, nephew, whatever, to stand up and fuck off because my client hasn't seen them in 30 years, then you better stand up and fuck off because the rest of the crowd here know that you shouldn't be here because you haven't seen them in 30 years. Now leave. Now she gets a bit upset about that side of it because she says, oh, you know, it's a bit rude. And I said, yes, but you're now thinking that funerals are for the living and they're not. Funerals are for the deceased. It's their funeral. Let them have their funeral. It's theirs. And that's what I'm projecting. And she's coming to terms with that now saying, because you're right. You're, you're absolutely right. Let's let's start thinking that, you know, we've got to respect the dead. And yeah. it's something that a lot of funerals don't do, especially the religious ones. They have it all for them. Yes, I was going to say, I'm sure you've gone to a wide variety of funerals. And I can definitely say that the church funerals are definitely um, more performative or almost have mm. like that theatrical overtone to it. Oh, absolutely. And everything's about uh, God and Jesus and everything else, which is fine. And I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is that the person that was uh, that's died and laying in the casket, did they want that? Did they want a religious funeral? Because I've been to a funeral, I've crashed one where I've had to tell the priest, the priest to sit down, shut up or fuck off because the man in the coffin wasn't religious. He was an atheist. His mum and dad set this funeral up and he told them throughout his whole life he didn't want a religious funeral. And his mates got up, applauded and they all walked out. And that's how it should be. You know, we've got to respect the dead. It's their yeah, wishes. I agree. Do you mind Too many vultures where... in the family. <laughs> Oh my gosh, there's vultures in every family. I think I've mm. noticed as I've gotten older, you see people for who they really are and it's just... Oh, for sure. Oh, yep. not the best. Uh, can, do you mind sharing where you got the inspiration for Coffin Confessing? It's something unlike anything I think I've ever heard of. Well, it, yeah, it started as a joke. I, it really did. I was working for a guy named Graham and I was investigating his claims, um, insurance claims and, and financials. I am a private investigator. I have been for you know, over 13 years now. And um, I got to know Graham really well in a really short time. And he had terminal cancer. And we were talking about death, the afterlife and everything else. And uh, I suggested he do a eulogy. He said, no. He said, I've been to enough funerals where the eulogies aren't played. You know, family watch them or listen to them first. And they go, no, we're not going to play that. That's embarrassing or we're not going to do it. Too confronting. So I suggested, and it was just a joke. I said, you know what? I could always crash your funeral for you. And uh, yeah, two weeks later, I get this text off Graham and he says, I'm taking you up on the offer. I'm going to give you 10 grand to crash my funeral. And I went, wow, okay. So I went and sat with Graham and we went over what he wanted done. And I said, well, look, as an investigator, I've got to get some facts. I've got to make sure this is actually happening. I don't want to crash your funeral and it all be lies. And he said, no, I totally understand. So I set up some cameras in his house and I caught his best mate trying to get on to his wife and his wife's not taking these advances, you know, advances and uh, she's quite concerned. And this guy was just grubby. He wasn't a best mate. So at the funeral, uh, Graham directed me to stand up and interrupt his best mate while he was performing the eulogy. And he had crocodile tears and he's talking about Graham and him on fishing trips. And then all of a sudden I stand up and I say, excuse me, my name's Bill Edgar. Sit down, shut up or fuck off. Graham laying in the coffin's got something to say, and this is what it is. And I open an envelope, read the letter aloud, and basically Graham had his last say, and it was good. It was it was it was a moment that I thought, well, that was cool, and that yeah. was it. And I thought that was it, you know, and it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, you had helped him with insurance claims, and so surely his wife recognized you, right? Oh, absolutely. Yes, yeah. So when sure. you stood up, was she like, "Oh, Bill's here"? Maybe no, it didn't was, expect. Um, 
No, it was her daughter. Uh, Graham's daughter knew that I was going to be there. They don't know what I was going to do. They had no idea what I was going to do, but they knew that I was going to be there. Now, every funeral I do, someone close to the person knows I'm going to be there. They have no idea what's going to happen because I have to know basically when they're going to die or when they've died or where the funeral's going to be. You know, so I have to keep in touch with certain people around them. Right. That makes sense. It's good that you have, uh, you know, someone doesn't pay you before they pass and then you realize that they died and their funeral was a week ago. You know, it's good to oh, have yeah, that'd that. Be shit, wouldn't it? <laughs> Total. It's good to have a system. Yeah. I'm glad you have a system in place. Oh, yeah. I have a very, very good system in place and I get to, um, the contracts are recorded on my phone as well as a binding contract written and signed by my clients. Um, and in the contract, I own all the stories which is really cool. Uh, and they said they'd love me to tell their story. And yeah, and that's what I do. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. And you know, you've gained so much popularity. And you had said once you went on a show and you came, you had like 5,000 emails or something crazy like that. So is there a process that you go through to decide who you will confess for and who you don't? Yeah, it's more so the people that uh, don't just email or contact me once. You, you'll get a couple of, you know, three or four. Um, I go through them all. My, my wife and I, we go through them all. And we, we, a lot of them, I've got to be honest with you, a lot of them come through of requests that they're not even close to death, but it's just what they want at their funeral. Mm-hmm. You know, and some people will say, look, you know, I want to be buried vertically. I want to be buried upside down. I want to be bur- uh, cremated with uh, fireworks. I want my phone in the coffin. You know, and I've done that. I've do, I've been to a lot of viewings and I've put, you know, phones, photos, jewellery in coffins. That's their request. That's what they want. Whether it stays there or not, I have no care or concern. The point is, is I've done it for them. Mm-hmm. After that, I don't know. You fulfilled your end of the deal. Absolutely. That's exactly right. When you get a letter from a soon-to-be-deceased one, do you pre-read the letters? Or are you just as surprised as like the family and friends? No, I sit with my clients and I read, you know, we, we write them out together. Together. Um, oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I so was I know everything you... <laughs> okay. except for, I've got to say, unless it's a crime, if they tell me the crime, I've got to report it. If they write the crime down and post it to me and I don't open it until the day of the funeral, I don't have to report it until I know and everybody else knows. And that's what I do in far as crimes go. It's interesting that people would want their crimes confessed at their funerals in front of like all their loved ones that seems so peculiar you think if you committed this horrendous crime you'd be like well thank goodness I'm dying and this can just you know go in the casket with me yeah I I thought the same at the start but then I thought maybe it's closure for families or other people Um, maybe they're giving them closure maybe it's something that they've lived with their whole lives Um, you know I get a lot of emails from prisons and people saying, look, I, I want to, you know, if I die, this is what I want to do. And this is what I want to say. This is who I want you to reach out to. So, yeah, there's a service there. I didn't think it was, again, I didn't had no idea it was, it was warranted, but it is. Okay. That's, I, I will have to think about that throughout the day. I guess I mm. had like a one track thought with that one and mm. not at all what I thought it would be. But I guess closure is a very necess- necessary step of death too. Well, if you're going to die, you know you're going to die and it's the end and, and, and there's no more. Do you want to die with a clean slate or do you want to take it all with you? And that's the decision they make. And I guess these people with a serious crime or whatever they've done, they want to get it off their chest. They want to, you know, 
those certain people want to say, look, you know, I'm sorry I did this. This is closure. This is how it was done or whatever. Yeah. How could, uh, specific can clients be? Like, do they ask you to use a certain enunciation or like a certain set of emotions or dramatic pauses to really get their message across? Not so much because they know I'm pretty blunt and that's why they engage me because I can sort of go to a funeral and say, hey guys, fuck off. You shouldn't be here. Glenn in the coffin has told you, Barry, you, Sandra, and you, Auntie Julie, to fuck off. You shouldn't be here. You know, so I'm pretty, pretty blunt in that way. Although when it's a loving message or a gift afterwards, and that's something I'm doing a lot of now is that I'm delivering gifts. It's called afterlife gifts. And I'm an afterlife delivery service because I've got um, bottles of wine and flowers that I have to go and deliver on a certain day of their remembrance. And it might be a, an anniversary or a birthday where recently I had to take a gentleman who's, you know, he's in his mid 60s and it was on this certain day. And I presented a, a letter to him and a bunch of flowers. And I said, This is from your wife. And it was four months after the funeral, four months. And he got it and he opened it and it was a uh, around the world trip that him and his wife was supposed to take. And it was tickets all paid, all done for him, you know. And uh, it's an emotional thing and it's an emotional experience. And, and when I do those things, I do it in a way that I believe those people engage me, want me to do it. So I can be good, bad, funny and sad. Yeah. Oh, what an emotional, you know, you could you could go to one event and have like that anger for them or, you know, get out of here, mm. you weren't a good friend. And then... What like an emotional journey that being a coffin confessor has taken you through. I think if I were to give a a husband his wife's gift, you know, f- four or five months after she's gone, I don't, mm. I would be a babe. I would cry. <laughs> I'm a crier. <laughs> I caught dethawing. I'm just dethawing my yeah. emotions. I think before he even opened the envelope, I would just be a sobbing mess. Mm. Yeah, I, look, I, I think I've just, I'm, I'm a bit different. I, I'm built a bit different, I guess. I don't know. I mean, to me, it was just a wonderful thing to do. It was like in, uh, you know, at one stage there, I had to go to a, a home of another gentleman that his wife instructed me to make sure I go there. And before he gives all, all her clothes to goodwill, he's got to go through all the pockets. And I went to this house and I saw this bloke and he said, yeah, yeah, I've been, I've done it, mate. Don't worry about it. It's all done. And I said, look, your wife said you'd say that. And this is what else she said. And I put out my phone and I put the recording on. And there's his wife saying, honey, please let Bill in. Please let him tell you exactly where I want you to search. And that was basically a personal message between him and her on my phone. And he'd let me in and we'd talk and he'd make a cup of tea. And uh, after about an hour and a half, I think we found nearly $14,000. But he had no idea. <laughs> in the pockets of her clothes? Yeah, yeah. It was in pockets of clothing. It was in a soap holder. It was in um, all her personal effects that he was basically going to uh, give to Goodwill. It was amazing. Oh, my gosh. I would have been. Mm. What a good wife that knows her husband well. I know you're going to lie about <laughs> yeah. it. Let him in and let him search. Yeah. yeah. $14,000 yeah. is so much money. Oh, yeah. It was ridiculous. Ridiculous. And she was a hoarder. She said she was a hoarder. She was a cash hoarder. It was always money. She, she hoarded money. And he never, he had no idea because he'd work and he'd, he'd do all the bills and everything. He didn't know $20 was going missing here one, one week, 40 the next, 100 later on. Or, he had no idea. But that's what she was doing. She was saving for their, for their whatever it was, whatever they were going to do, you know. Wow. So, yeah. Okay. Quite cool. 
That is super cool. What would you say is the most abnormal request you've gotten? Pinpricking the body to make sure they were dead because he was terrified of being buried alive. He needs new friends and family, apparently, if he thinks they're (laughs) going to bury him alive. (laughs) Yeah, it's a fear that I didn't realize a lot of people have. Um, They have a fear of being cremated or buried alive. Um, so they really want to make sure they're dead. And you hear stories that people have woken up in, in you know, mortuaries and, and places like that. So you think, okay, well, but treating his body like a pin cushion was, uh, yeah, it was confronting and it was a bit a bit bizarre, but I did it. Did anyone catch you doing it or did you just slide oh, no. up at the viewing and just get him one time? <laughs> no, no, I just asked. I asked the people at the viewing if I could have a minute to myself with the, with my client, you know, and yeah, it's it all good. They're leaving, you're it. pretending to cry, oh, my sweet friend, and then they leave and you just jab him. <laughs> yeah, well, he said treat his body like a pin cushion, so, yeah, oh, I did. gosh. Have you ever left a funeral feeling guilty about what you said or do you leave with a clear conscience each time? <clears throat> uh, definitely a clear conscience. I'm just doing a job. I'm just a messenger. I have no care or concern for those left behind, none at all. I get up, do my job, and I walk out. I don't even know if the funeral continues because after I've read the letter, I put the letter on the envelope, uh, in the envelope, and I put the envelope on the coffin and I walk out. I have no idea. I just leave. So it's a mic drop for me. I just go in, say what I've got to say, mic drop, and walk out. And people are left there going, the fuck just happened? <laughs> <laughs> you got to feel so, like James Bond walking out of a church one of those times where it's like, I just <laughs> left an explosion behind me. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, basically that's uh, it can happen that way. Sometimes I might, um, yeah, if it's a loving message, you know, from a lady that uh, was, you know, basically talking through me, letting me know to her best friend that she absolutely loved her more in a way of love, not not just loving her. She she wanted to be with this lady, and it was uh, when I was leaving the funeral, the lady ran up to me and she said, "I wanted to be with her too." we were both married with kids we we had this underlying love i didn't know she loved me the same way and it was very emotional so i left that funeral and i thought to myself why the fuck can't we live the way we want to live why are we all so secretive and hiding shit why can't we be open and honest why is it that there's a secret and then i had to start to think about my own secrets my own thoughts and my own life and then i thought you know what, I'm going to take uh, Penguin's offer up and I'm going to write a book. And that's what I did. And I put it all out there. Yeah. It's crazy how other people's experiences can resonate with you so much that you're like, you're right. I need mm. to get out here. I need to live my life, do my thing. That's it's right. inspiring. Yeah. And don't let anyone stop you. Just go and do it. Yeah. Be prepared. Always be prepared. Always right? be prepared. That's right. And that's why the book's like it is because I was once told that if you ever become famous or even a little bit, there's going to be those vultures in the family that are going to come out and tell stories about you or a friend or an ex-friend or whoever it is. So I thought, you know what, fuck them. I'm going to put it all in the book. They're going to know everything. And so I did that and I put myself out there so no one could come back and say, you know what, he went to jail or he was molested or he was abused or whatever. You know, I put it out there. So say what you want now. Yeah, there's no control. You took the power back. Exactly. That's what it's about. You taking your power and keeping it and using it. I love that. You know, and everybody has that why behind their life, why they do certain things, why they've chosen to live their life a certain way. So like beyond Mm. financial gain, what would you say is your why for doing coffin confessing? Is it just simply a business or is there a deeper um, pull towards it? It's 
the why is because it's a necessity for people. I didn't realize it was going to be, but it is. And people just want it and loved it. And then all of a sudden, it's definitely not the money factor because, I mean, the money's great. I mean, I, I, I charge between two and $10,000 a funeral, but I never yeah. get a complaint and they don't need the money where they're going. So, you know, the money's great, but I enjoy it. I love it. It's so cool because I meet so many different people. And the sad part is, is I never meet those people again. Like, that's it. I've met them at the, at the most poignant time of their life. I get to know their innermost secrets, their desires, their wishes, their, their fantasies. I know more about them in a week than they've been with their partner for 20, 30 years. You know, and I know all these intimate secrets that I'm holding within me. And I just burst it all out at the funeral. And then I'm, I walk away and I go, oh, God, that was cool. That was so cool. I love it. It's just so for me, the why is because I enjoy it and because it's a need I didn't think was going to be fulfilled, but it is. It's, yeah, it's great. When you were a kid, what did you think you were going to do? I doubt you were five years old being like, you know what? I'm going to meet with dying people. <laughs> we'll write a letter and I'll say it at their funeral. I didn't have any. I just wanted to run away as a kid. I didn't have any. I didn't want to be a policeman because when I spoke to a policeman about what was happening, nothing happened to me. I didn't want to be a teacher because when I spoke to a teacher about what was happening to me, he kept on teaching and didn't care. So I just, I just wanted to run away. I just, I, I had no aspirations to be anything as a child. You know, I just, I just wanted to get away from the harm, the hurt. Yeah, freedom. You wanted yeah, freedom. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and now you give people freedom. That's so cool. Yeah, that's that's the beauty of it, isn't it? I, I expose and I give people a voice and and freedom and the ability to say, you know what. Life's too short. Fuck it. Enjoy it. Do what you want because you're dead longer than you're alive. That's, oh, you're dead longer than you're alive. You're just like firing up my soul today. I love it. <laughs> but it's true. It's what I've learned through it all. The experiences that I've gone through, I think to myself, you know, we can get upset about certain things in life that, you know what? Fuck that. Why bother? What is, why do you even bother with all that? Let's just move on. You know, and enjoy life because you could go tomorrow. You know, you could go next week. It doesn't matter when you go, you're going. It does yep. not matter when you go, you will be going. Yeah. You know, so prepare. Yes. Enjoy. Always be prepared to go. Absolutely. I love that. Um, so everyone can get your book on Amazon, correct? Yeah, anywhere. Yeah, the book's available all over the world now, which is yeah, just insane. And it's, it's really cool. I get some beautiful messages from everywhere. And it's, uh, yeah, it's funny because I was in my own little cocoon, my own little world when I had, you know, when I was writing the book and I was writing it and I thought to myself, you know, you get one or two people reading it and see how it goes and get a few comments and then all of a sudden it just yeah, exploded and I went, shit, yeah. wow. <laughs> people are more yeah. interested than I thought. And you've written yeah. a multitude of books, haven't you? I Well, not a multitude. I've read, I wrote a book in 2012. And it was based on my life. I was trying to expose this, the Southport School about the abuse I suffered. And I met some people along the way. And I wrote this book. It was just self-published. And when Penguin come and saw me and said, look, you know, we want you to write a book. We're going to give you this, this, and this. You need to write a book. This is just incredible story. The Coffin Confessor, your backstory, everything. Can we use the stuff from the old book that you wrote and do it? And I said, yeah, no worries. Because the old book, that I, the original book I wrote, um, like I say, I'm dyslexic. It wasn't, you couldn't follow it too well. <laughs> and it was self, I only did it for my own self therapy. That's all I did it for. 
you know. And like I say, I never learned to read, write and spell until I was 30. Now I'm engaged by lawyers, barristers, courtrooms to go through files and documents to make sure they're all, you know, great and, and can be used in court. So it's amazing how life changes. Yeah, what an inspiration. I feel like by the time you're 30, it's so difficult. You know, I think of learning a new mm. language and how when oh, yeah. I was a teenager, learning um, Spanish was so easy for me and uh, brain doesn't work <laughs> the same. Crazy. Not the same nah. brain that read all the Harry Potter books, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I just said to my wife last night, I, I can't read books I, I, and I can't watch a whole movie for some reason i'm the type of person that'll move leave five minutes before the end of a movie because i've already got it in my head what's going to happen and i know the ending so i'll leave and it's just i don't know why but that's that's just something in me i might be broken i have a broken sat nav too because my wife could take me somewhere and then she'll say go back there and i'll be going where, where did we just go <laughs> but i've had that my whole life that's just me um so i i, I love the audible you know, but even the audible, I'll sit there and I'll listen and I'll, I'll go, oh, yeah, it's a great story. And uh, they'll get to like the last chapter and I'll go, oh, that was cool. That's enough. And my wife says, well, what about the last? Did you get, did you get the ending? Oh, yeah, yeah, I got it. Or, did you listen? No, I didn't. But what about the ending? And I'll tell her exactly the ending. She'll go, oh, you listened to it. No, I didn't. I just, I could pick it up, <laughs> you know. So I don't know why, but yeah, it's just one of those things. My, the last chapter of a book is my absolute favorite. I can't believe I'm <laughs> talking to someone who doesn't read the last chapter of uh, books. That's crazy. Uh, it's incredible, isn't it? Uh, same with movies. Like I just don't, you know, I don't watch the last bit. I know what's going to happen. You yeah. okay, Have you ever seen the movie Shutter Island with Leonardo DiCaprio in it? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. You knew yeah. what was going to happen at the end of that movie? Are you serious? Yeah, no, I don't think I did. I don't think I did. I think I watched that whole movie, to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, the one bizarre, and only. It? Yeah. it was so bizarre. Yeah. That's one yeah. of those movies that at the end, you're just sitting there with. Yeah, exactly. Jaw yeah. open. I, I mean, obviously, there's movies that you will sit through. And, and it's just it's just now and then. I mean, like Sixth Sense was another one that you'd sit through and. I'd watch the whole thing and I'd go, yeah, oh, that was cool. But then I'd come up with stupid things in my brain that says, well, how did, how come he saw him and he didn't, or he did this? And, then, you know, I, I start analyzing everything. I think that's the investigative brain that I have. <laughs> Just, I don't know. I understand that. I have, I, a, I have a science brain and it's hard to kind of have like an imagination where you're like, eh, I don't know if that could be true. Uh, for no. someone who read Harry Potter <laughs> yeah well I was younger I wanted yeah, to believe but... in all the crazy things and that one day I'd get my Hogwarts letter but I didn't so we'll just leave but you it make there. it up yourself you make your own yeah you know, who cares just make it yourself we only live once that's it that's true we're we're dead longer than we're alive that's right well, I want to thank you so much for giving me your time today, sharing your story, sharing your experiences off of the Coffin Confessor. It, it took me a long time to send that message on Instagram to see if you <laughs> wanted to come on and getting your response was probably the most joy I've felt in a couple of weeks. So I just I'm so oh, appreciative wow. of your time and sharing your stories with me and my listeners as well. It, it means a lot to me. And you're my first international guest. Oh, well. Terrific. No, look, I'm, I'm, I'm humbled. I really am. I, I, I don't say no to anybody. Anybody that reaches out, I always say yes, because they've taken the time to reach out like you have, you know, and you've seen something that you want to hear about and your listeners might, might like. And, you know, I don't know. I, I just think to myself, 
how cool, how humbled am I to be able to do what I do and just, yeah, I, I feel I'm blessed. It's an amazing life for a very deserving person. You're an, you're an inspiration. I know that sounds kind of cliche, kind of corny, but I read your story. Mm. I listen to you on podcasts and I walk away feeling inspired by the trepidations you've gone through and knowing that, you know, if Bill can do this. I can get through midterm week and everything's going to be fine. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, no, I say to people, the one thing I do say to people, they say, look, I want change. I want to move on. What do I do? And I say to them, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got. And if you want to stay in that fucking area, then you're always going to get what you fucking do. Move on. Break out. Explore. You know, otherwise you will always get what you've always got. So, yeah. <sighs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it. No worries. Take care and thank you and hi to all your listeners. Hope they enjoy it. Yes, of course. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye.